It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome to Scottish Independence podcast. Fiona here, uh, just me this month. And I'm recording this with rain and wind lashing around me. Um, Storm Jocelyn, I think we're up to now. Hope everybody is safe and warm and out of the rain. So as usual, we're going to drop in on Holyrood, Westminster. We'll take a look at some of the other things that have been going on. And let's just see what caught our eye this month. Twenty twenty four seems to have got up to a very uh, warlike start, doesn't it? We've got war in Ukraine. For some reason, UK and US have started bombing Yemen, and we also have the awful events happening in Gaza. Our first clip comes from one of the Westminster committees, Brendan O'Hara, trying to get a straight answer from UK Foreign Secretary, the unelected Lord David Cameron. About two or three minutes ago, an answer, uh, a reply to the chair. You said, and I quote, one of the things we'd like the Israelis to do is switch the water back on. Now, that says that they turned it off. It says that you recognise they have the power to turn it on. Therefore, isn't turning water off and having the ability to turn it back on but choosing not to, isn't that a breach of international humanitarian law? It's just something they ought to do, in my no, opinion. No, I'm, of course they should do it. Every human being would say, yeah. you don't cut people's water supply off. But I'm asking you and your position as Foreign Secretary, well, I don't, around I the mean, point of international humanitarian yeah. law, if Israel have the power to turn the water back on that they turned off, surely that is a flagrant breach of international humanitarian law. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Wow. The Foreign Secretary of the UK government can't answer that question because he's not a lawyer. As far as I know, Hamza Youssef isn't a lawyer either, but he managed to say this about the situation. In the last uh, week, uh, we have heard statements from senior ministers in Netanyahu's government, uh, the Finance Secretary, the National Security Minister, very senior members of Netanyahu's government, and they have made statements that the population of Gaza should be resettled, moved out of Gaza, and gone as far as saying that Israeli settlements should now be in Gaza. If that is not tantamount to ethnic cleansing, then I don't know what is. And I think political leaders should stop beating around the bush, should call what they're seeing in Gaza by what it is. And we, have, we are seeing not only a humanitarian crisis, but we're now seeing senior members of the Netanyahu government making statements that are frankly the textbook definition of ethnic cleansing and that should be condemned in the strongest possible manner. Stephen Flynn also had a go at calling out the UK government with his PMQ question. Stephen Flynn. Mr Speaker, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom to rise to that dispatch box and tell the people of these isles and elsewhere that shooting an unarmed man walking under a white flag is a war crime. Now, now in recent weeks, this House has acted with urgency and intent following an ITV drama. The question is, will this House now show the same urgency and intent following this ITV news report? And finally, back a ceasefire in Gaza. 
hero of the hour was the South African government who made a complaint to the International Court of Justice that Israel was committing genocide or attempting to commit genocide. This next clip is the South African representative, I think he was the ambassador, saying why South Africa felt it was important to take this action. The evidence at this stage indicates grave violence and genocidal acts against Palestinians in Gaza in flagrant contravention of the Genocide Convention and in breach of their rights. South Africa has come to this court to prevent genocide and to do so in the discharge of the international obligation that rests on South Africa and all other states under the Convention. The consequences of not indicating clear and particularized specific provisional measures and not taking steps to intervene while Israel disregards its international obligations before our eyes would, we fear, be very grave indeed for the Palestinians in Gaza who remain at real risk of further genocidal acts for the integrity of the Convention, for the rights of South Africa and for the reputation of this court. You just can't help thinking, not that long ago, that might have been Britain standing up for oppressed people and refugees, populations under attack, but not now. So it's expected that the ICJ will take a couple of weeks to consider the application and obviously we'll bring you any update when we get it. And I know there's a demonstration for a ceasefire in Gaza that'll be taking place in Edinburgh on Saturday the 3rd of February. Moving on from the horrors of war to the horrors of the pandemic, the Scottish um, COVID inquiry has begun this month. There's been a ridiculous amount of focus on whether or not the Scottish government conducted business over WhatsApp, and it certainly doesn't seem that they did. Nicola Sturgeon released a statement making it clear that government discussions and decisions were made in proper meetings, which were minuted. So this is just a lot of media smoke about nothing. During the COVID inquiry, though, there was a really sad glimpse into what it was like for academic Academic Devi Shrida, who, as you'll maybe remember, was very active on Twitter and other social media, bringing really helpful guidance and suggestions, I think, which I certainly appreciated. But she explained what it had been like for her during that period because she chose to take on that role. It has been rough. I have, I won't go into it too much, but I have gotten death threats. I've had racism, sexism, homophobia, you name it, xenophobia. Um, and I've taken it because I think the bigger idea is that we try to help each other and, and do good. And, um, and, and I stay, stay true to that. But it's not about me anymore, because I lead a team of researchers at the university, um, postdocs, PhDs, masters, um, about 75% are young women. They don't want to go near government service or the media. Um, they've seen too much. And it makes me sad because I've done my tour of duty, I've done my service, my book ends by saying, you know, I'm on to my next things, but who's going to step up next time? Mm -hmm. And I don't think seeing how it's gone that others will be willing to do it because the cost is high and the benefits are low. Academia is oriented around the grants you bring in, your research income, your teaching and your publications. What are your citations? That is how you get promoted. That is how you make your career. Sitting on government panels is seen as, you know, great that you've done it. Media work is completely seen as irrelevant, I would say. And so why would you do it given the costs involved? I did it because we were in a pandemic and people were dying 
and I just thought it was too important not to speak up. Um, my sister also works on a COVID ward in New York City. She had seen everything before, you know, we were hit slightly after them and all of that. And I just felt you've got to speak up if you're going to speak up. But would I do it again? As I said, I think I don't know if I would, knowing what I know now. And I don't know have solutions. It's not Britain specific. This is true, as I say in my book, of Netherlands, Germany, United States is even worse. There you're afraid of being shot. At least here you're only worried about being stabbed. At least you're only worried about being stabbed. What a dreadful indictment of society today. And it's really worrying, I think, that there she gives the example of a team, largely women, they don't want to go into politics, they don't want to go into working for the government, they don't want to go into the media because of the way they're treated. I think we've mentioned on this podcast before just how noticeable it is, that sort of male, aggressive, hectoring, gotcha style of journalism that we have. It's even worse at Westminster, but it also is in Hollywood, particularly some of the Tories, Douglas Lumsden, Russell Finley, Dross himself, Stephen Kerr. It's just rude compared to the actual real society. And remember how there was a great burgeoning of community spirit during the pandemic, people looking out for each other, people volunteering, all the good positive behaviours, the kind of thing you want. And yet this element exists. And ironically, I think the solution is not to have women squeezed out of these arenas, but to have more women in. They're still male dominated. And that's where this macho aggressive behaviour gets to thrive. More women need to step up, not less. And we probably need to support each other more while we're doing it. That's my opinion anyway. And now we'll turn to the Scottish budget. Here's Shona Robertson. Once again, the UK government has chosen to pursue an austerity budget that will have a profound consequence for Scotland's public services. As the Institute of Fiscal Studies has said of the autumn statement, the tax cuts are paid for by planned real cuts in public service spending. Even with the fiscal framework in place, levels of funding for the Scottish budget remain closely tied to spending decisions by the UK government. Decisions to starve services in England hit our budget in Scotland, as the UK government's failure to invest in services in England means that the devolved administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland do not receive adequate consequentials. A cursory look at the UK government's autumn statement for 24-25 shows the devastating impact of Tory austerity being forced on services, even using lower estimates of inflation. UK frontline resource budgets are seeing real terms cuts. For example, if planned UK day-to-day expenditure on services in 2024-25 had grown in real terms since 22-23, then compared to Conservative plans in England, health and social care spending would be over £8 billion higher. One of the difficulties of covering the fiscal framework in a bits and pieces type podcast is that A, the fiscal framework is extremely complicated and B, it's extremely dry. It's easy to think, oh no, we've got no money and then switch off. But at Holyrood, Ash Regan put forward a suggestion. I'm not sure if she's right or not at this stage, but it was certainly interesting. Here's what she said. Rather than the Smith Commission delivering greater fiscal control and responsibility for Scotland, it has unfortunately left us with a position of having greater accountability, but crucially without the fiscal levers to back it up. Greater responsibility without power, never a good position to be in. In recent years, the Scottish Government has chosen to increase tax slightly. And this should mean more money raised to spend on investing 
in better public services, something I think we would all welcome, and I'm sure the Scottish public would welcome very much. But this is not what happened. The Spice report, the Scottish public paid £900 million in higher tax over a three-year period, but the Scottish budget only rose by £170 million over that same period. So £730 million was lost because of the fiscal settlement. The Scottish fiscal settlement and the recent amendment to that settlement that was agreed kind of behind closed doors in the summer is probably going to need a separate dedicated podcast all on its own to try and unravel. So we'll not try and do that here. But we did have a look at the Finance Committee to try and understand the the issue about raising taxes not necessarily resulting in higher income. And it was mentioned a little bit. Here's what we found. In terms of income tax, one of the the issues, of course, which has been very much to the forefront has been the the kind of new additional rate. It starts at £75,000 a year. Um, Now, you've assumed that that will produce £82 million net, but uh, gross, it's £200 million. Would that be right? So basically what you're saying is that of the £200 million, which on paper is being levied by that change, will actually bring in only 41%, £82 pounds. Would that be right? Gross impact is around 200 million and the net impact is about 82 million once you net off behavioural effects. So behavioural effects, this is where people at the higher end of the income scale, especially those who have more ability to adjust how their salary is paid, can choose to arrange their affairs in such a way that they don't end up paying the additional tax that we're expecting them to pay. Now, setting aside the morality of that, which I think is deeply questionable, the bottom line is that that the Scottish government has such limited ways of raising income that it does tend to fall disproportionately on the one group it can get money from, which is the employed people, which yet again just shows the, the limitations of not being an independent country when you have all the taxes, all the choices and all the income. But still, it does seem as if we're losing an awful lot. That increased tax take just doesn't seem to be doing us any good. Is that the case? You know, we, we, we're estimating 80 million rather than 200 million, but 200 million in the context of nearly 20 billion pounds worth of total revenues. These are relatively small. You could change these assumptions significantly, but they wouldn't actually have a not- much of an impact on overall income tax revenues. So there's just a there's a point about expectations and assumptions about using different tax elasticities, you know, when you're talking about these particular tax policies, it won't dramatically change income tax revenues, given the scales that of the magnitudes that are involved. OK, I think that meant that it's just a guess how much of that tax is actually going to be collected. And even if they're wrong, it's a tiny amount compared to the overall tax take. And it did sound as if there was some good news in terms of wages growth. Emerging evidence we were getting of Scottish earnings growth outperforming the rest of of the UK. That's continued into this year where you see the differential in earnings growth between Scotland and the UK and Scotland moving ahead of the UK. So increased wages growth, that sounds like a good thing because more wages, more tax. And it is worth reminding ourselves that we do get quite a lot for that tax in Scotland compared to if you're living in England. But there's one person who was disappointed at the size of the Scottish budget, perpetually angry Tory, Douglas Lumsden. 
uh, to ask the Scottish Government whether it will provide an update on the total cost to date of its Building a New Scotland series of papers. The Scottish Government is publishing the publication costs of all the papers in the Building a New Scotland series. The Parliament has been informed of the cost for the first nine papers in that series. The cumulative cost has been £151,657.40, meaning the average cost of the first nine papers in the series of £16,850.21. Mm. This cumulative total represents a value of around 0.00025% of the total of the Scottish Government budget of this financial year. We will continue to publish the cost information for future papers once released, as we committed to doing. Uh, thank you, President. So, so far, the SNP Government has wasted about 151,000 on nine independence prospectus papers. What a complete waste of taxpayer money when the propaganda papers fail to answer any key questions about currency, fiscal framework and pensions. And even the First Minister previously described them as material that frankly sits on a website and nobody reads. So, Minister, do you agree with the First Minister's comments? And can you explain to the Scottish taxpayers why this money would not be better spent on our schools, on our health service or on our police? Minister. Well, it's, it's pretty clear that Mr Lumsden was looking for a figure that was rather higher than a value of around 0.00025% of the total of the Scottish Government's budget this financial year. He clearly wasn't listening when I responded to Mr Cameron. I'll need to remind Mr Lumsden. We won the last Scottish Parliament election. We have a mandate to take for this activity as Parliament lost the last uh, Scottish Parliament election. That's why we are in government. And I think it is money well spent when you look at countries around uh, Scotland, like Ireland, with uh, an income spread of 24% higher than the UK, Denmark 35% higher uh, than the UK, Norway 61% higher than the UK, when we have a Burich of a UK economy, the OBR, predicting as a result of uh, Brexit, will have GDP 4% lower in the long run. The only way we can escape this mess is through independence, and we'll continue to make the case. Well, Jamie Hepburn was on a roll Next, he was thrown a question by Dr Alistair Allen about Michel Moan and the House of Lords. Uh, will he agree that following Baroness Moan's disastrous television interview last month, the lesson uh, that no parliament should have an unelected house if it wishes to be accountable in any way whatsoever to the electorate is once more clearly, if rather painfully, made? I do uh, agree with that. I should, of course, say it's not just Ms Moan that has acted in a a manner that uh, is unbecoming of a person in uh, public life as a, a member of the legislature of the UK. We've seen other uh, issues with peers turning up to claim expenses just for the mere act of turning up at Westminster. But with respect to Ms Moan, we see serious uh, questions, first of all, around the judgment of the Conservatives in sending her to the Lords yeah, in the first yeah. place, yeah, yeah. but around an individual who has used her own position as a member of the House of Lords at a time of international crisis when we saw many people in all communities across Scotland freely volunteering their time to support their communities, seeking and not declaring an interest in using her position yep. to rake in millions of pounds yeah, yeah. for her own family. Shameful. That hardly speaks Shameful. to a proper system Shameful. of governance. Yeah, yeah. BBC Scotland were at the Culture Committee this month. Keith Brown decided to tackle them about the perspective of their current affairs programmes and made a surprising admission about his own mum in the process. And I'd like to say, well done, Mrs Brown. 
There is a, certainly, in my experience, never been a time when the BBC, other broadcasters as well, have had such widespread kind of concern, if you like, about um, their output. And we've seen increasing numbers of people not paying their licence fee, including young people, not just young people, thinking about my mum as well. So it, that is bound to be having an impact, and part of it at least is related to what they perceive to be the nature of the current affairs output of the BBC, if I can put it that way. And I, I think this week we've seen a reference to the fact that the BBC Nine programme could have as few as 200 viewers. I don't know if that's true. It's certainly been reported on social media. So I think there are real concerns about that. And I wondered, given that we've seen in recent times, the I think he's called the Director General of the BBC attending a meeting of Conservative MPs at Westminster, if we can expect a similar kind of courtesy from the Director General in this Parliament uh, in terms of direct communication with the Director-General to raise some of these concerns? Is that possible? I, I know previous Director-Generals, I think, have um, appeared in, before this committee, Mr Brown, so I, I would imagine that... It wasn't that, that... this committee. I mean, the one that happened at Westminster was for a particular political party. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Speculation continues on when the general election will be called. Sunik says it'll be in the autumn, which with his track record means it's probably going to be in May. You can see the parties starting to get themselves into election mode. Obviously, there's a lot of focus on polling. And here is John Curtis to tell us what the the latest implications are. Let's take a couple of points away from particularly Lord Ashcroft's poll. Number one is that the attempt to stop the boats is certainly something that Conservative voters, around just over a third of them, regard as the most important of Mr Sunak's priorities, but frankly virtually nobody else does. So it's a very distinctive policy insofar as it appeals to Conservative voters but hardly uh, to anybody else. But moving more broadly to the government's difficulty is how it's going to persuade voters that it's management of the economy and its stewardship of taxation uh, over the course of the last four years is to be defended. Well, probably vital message for uh, the Conservative Party from the uh, Lord Ashcroft's poll, and it chimes with lots of other polling, is if you ask voters to choose between tax cuts, which the Chancellor, uh, Jeremy Hunt, has been talking further about at the Davos Economic Summit, as saying that he wants to introduce more of, uh, in the uh, in the spring, he's already had one cut uh, before Christmas. The voters faced with that choice think that it's more important to sort out our public services than it is to reduce tax cuts. So, you know, from this, in other words, what you should draw the message is that while the Conservative Party, in focusing on immigration, mm. are focusing on an issue that is indeed of a particular concern for many of their supporters, though whether it dissuades them from voting Conservative if the votes are not stopped, that's another matter. Um, but the, so far as appealing to the wider electorate is concerned, and the Conservatives do need to appeal well, well beyond mm. the, the 25% or so that on average in the opinion polls the Conservatives have, uh, then the truth is they mm. perhaps think some of the strategy on which they're currently embarked. They used to say, John, that the path to Downing Street for Labour ran through the Scottish constituencies. Is that still the case? Do they still need a renewal of Scottish Labour to command a majority? 
Not necessarily. I mean, today's 27 point lead in the in in, in uh, YouGov's poll. Forget it. I mean, uh, the Labour Party doesn't need a single extra seat in Scotland to get a very substantial majority, uh, given those kinds of figures. Um, if you take the but even if you take the average of the opinion polls at around 19 points, that would be enough to deliver a Labour majority uh, simply within England and Wales. Of course, what the Labour Party is concerned about is that maybe their lead in the opinion polls will be narrower by the time of the election and that therefore picking up some seats in Scotland will otherwise ease a path that might, in the absence of those seats, result in a minority Labour administration rather than a majority one. But the truth mm. is, if Labour retain the kind of poll lead they have had ever since the demise of Liz Truss, the former Prime Minister, back in October 2022, then what happens in Scotland will end up proving to be irrelevant. Stephen Flynn was on TV talking about the launch of the SNP's election campaign. What we did the other day was launch our general election campaign because whether it's May or whether it's November, we're ready for a general election and we're ready to make sure that Scotland is free of the Conservatives. And ultimately, the only way to do that is to vote for the SNP because in around half of the seats in Scotland, it's going to be a, a straight up fight between ourselves and the Scottish Tories. But the election is going to be about much more than that, Mark, and it's going to be a battle of ideas as well. And ultimately, it's the SNP, not the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, who will always stand up. For Scotland, now. let me let me just take you back on that because you say you you're going to get rid of the Tories and the only way to do that is to mm -hmm. vote SNP. That's just manifestly not true, is it? I mean, you and the First Minister are saying Keir Starmer's a shoe in for this anyway. Well, well, Mark, and I think if you look at the data in around half of the seats in Scotland, indeed the six Tory seats which are held, seven Tory seats, it is the SNP who are the only ones who can wipe the Conservatives off the electoral map in Scotland in half of those seats. And that's ultimately what we will be seeking to do. And I think the Scottish people would welcome that. But the election is going to be about much more than just that, Mark, and it's going to be about that battle of ideas. And we need to have that battle of ideas. It's not good enough, as Keir Starmer wants to do, simply say nothing and let the Conservatives collapse. We have... Uh, solutions to the cost of living crisis in terms of energy bill support, mortgage bill support, food bill support. When it comes to the big issues facing the economy, we believe that we should be uh, in the European Union. We believe that migration is a good thing. It benefits our economy, it benefits our NHS and it benefits our social care service. When it comes to energy policy, we need to be doubling down mm. on net zero because Scotland has natural resources which can ensure that people who live in Scotland, in energy rich Scotland, aren't in fuel poverty. Yeah. When it comes to foreign affairs, we are the only group of parliamentarians who are arguing for that immediate ceasefire from Scotland. And of course, when it comes to Scotland's constitutional future, protecting the ability of the people of Scotland to have that independent future, it's only the SNP who will stand up for that. So in all of those policy areas, those rich policy areas, we're going to be Scotland's voice, stand up for Scotland's okay. values and seek to protect our future. But That's what this general election is going to be fought on and I'm confident sure. of success. Well, I'm not much given to football analogies, but I would say that was a game of two halves. I'm not at all convinced by this focus on getting rid of six Tory seats. Does it matter if we've got six Tory seats in Scotland if they're not in power at Westminster? What can they do? They're in irrelevance. For sure, I want the Tories annihilated. I want them out of Scotland. But I don't want them out of Scotland and replaced by Labour. So surely the big enemy that the SNP ought to be focusing on is not the Tories, who are pretty much on the ropes right now. I thought he was much stronger when he started talking about ideas and policies. Those are important things. But again, we just have to remind ourselves that it doesn't matter how good the ideas are that go down to Westminster, they're just going to get voted down. They're not going to see the light of day. I really like Stephen Flynn, but I wish he would turn his focus a bit more to 
getting us independence and not being the voice of Scotland in Westminster. Nobody cares if Scotland's got a voice in Westminster, even if we've got the most powerful voice in the world. It's outvoted by English MPs. Doesn't matter what we say. Talking of Labour, it is really worth reminding ourselves Labour are a unionist party. I understand the desire to get rid of the Tories any way that seems to be going to work, but Labour in Scotland are not going to be any better. They are a unionist party and they're an increasingly right-wing unionist party. And if you're in any doubt, here's one of their MPs, Siobhan MacDonald, explaining that. Well, Kiss Thomas made it completely clear that there's absolutely no deals to deal with the SNP. And actually, in Scotland, Labour's gone so far as to rule out any uh, relationship with them, even in local elections. I mean, I think we lost control of Aberdeen Council because we refused to do it. Only last week, we suspended two Labour councillors in Edinburgh because they weren't prepared to vote for the Tories over the SNP. So you've got actual real live examples of Labour's determination to do nothing with the SNP. So there you go, Labour MP confirming that Labour would far rather get into bed with the Tories yet again than have any dialogue with the SNP. Not learning the lesson of 2014 and standing on that Better Together platform with the Tories at all. And from that perspective, all I can say is, well, hell, mend them. But here's a thought. If you know any independence-supporting, socialist-leaning folk who are minded to vote Labour, why not remind them that there is a socialist, independence-supporting party, a Scottish party, the SSP. Scottish Independence Podcasts are not party political. I'm not a member of any party. But uh, Marlene and I were at an SSP event at the weekend there. It was an excellent event. The memorial lecture was on the legacy of famous Scottish socialist John McLean, the Red Clyde Cider. The lecture was delivered by author Henry Bell, who has written a biography on McLean. And it's going to be next Friday's podcast. So definitely listen to that one. It's a fascinating story. And John McLean died 100 years ago. And yet so much of what was relevant in his day is relevant now. So we also spotted that there is a crowdfunder on the go just now for a statue of John McLean to be raised in Glasgow. They're looking for £50,000 to make a bronze statue. And Marlene did some arithmetic and worked out there are 612,000 Glaswegians. So if just one in 10 gave a pound, that would do it. <laughs> We've contributed to that crowdfunder ourselves. And if you feel that that's something you would also like to support for a Scottish icon, really, then it's crowdfunder.co.uk. John McLean's statue is the campaign. But even if you aren't able to do that, it's still, it was a fabulous lecture and well worth listening to our podcast next Friday. And the event was chaired by SSP activist Richie Benton. And here is a little taste of his address. And when we look forward, there's a fork in the road. And the fork is down the road of uh, potentially nuclear destruction, certainly climatic destruction, of the environment, of species, including the human uh, race. So we have that as one scenario painted by the powers of capitalism. And I don't think it's to exaggerate, to put it that bluntly. And on the other hand, we've got the technology, we have the, the artificial intelligence, we have the potential, we've got the human intelligence, we've got the skills, we've got the potential for things like a far shorter working week, 
for uh, a guaranteed decent level of minimum wage and beyond, for provision of universal basic services of a high standard instead of being a, in a state of disintegration as they are today in this country and many others. We have the potential, in other words, for human solidarity and human collective organisation being the source of undreamt of uh, wealth, both material and spiritual. Uh, we have those two choices, that fork of the road. And let me put it bluntly, one of the things that McLean was particularly uh, irritated by were those who on the left argued that socialism was inevitable. No, it's not. It has to be fought for. And he, for example, said, the safety of society rests not in the hands of a few leaders and heroes, but in those of the masses of mankind, conscious or unconscious. The moment will come when the workers will challenge capitalism to the last fight and win through to the world society of a united human race, producing each for all and all for each. That's the vision the Scottish Socialist Party has. And I would actually argue, without being in any way pompous or exclusivist about it, that the Scottish Socialist Party and our fighting programme for socialism, a phrase that McLean also used in terms of his own election programme, for example, a fighting programme on the minimum wage, on the shorter week, on public ownership and investment, etc. All those different things, I think we best match the traditions the aspirations, the ideals of John McLean. McLean is not for us an icon who was always right. I think there's things he was wrong on. But in fundamentals, he stood on the side of the working class who produced the wealth of society and for a liberation of that class as a means of liberating humankind as a whole in a socialist future. A society of united human beings producing each for all and all for each. And uh, to quote one of his uh, friends and comrades, James Connolly, some of you heard me say many a time this, the only true prophets are those who carve out the future that they announce. You won't get socialism by waiting for it. You won't get socialism by just thinking it's a good idea, a personal preference. You'll only get socialism by convincing the mass of the population in this modern uh, age, the working class of society, of the benefits, advantages and routes towards that socialist future. The working class is the class that will liberate humanity from all the prospects of that other choice of destruction, annihilation, extinction of species, including uh, humanity on the, on the planet. So join the struggle for socialism, join the organised collective form of socialist struggle in the case of Scotland in the form of the Scottish Socialist Party. Don't go for second best and say, I'll be a socialist in a non-socialist party. That's been tried and utterly failed. Join a party that's unashamedly socialist, be part of that, help to shape it, and help to shape the future. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. 
Now, listeners who keep an eye on our YouTube channel, IndiePod Extra, will have noticed we've had a couple of little items this month called Hot Topics. And it just happened to be there were two points that came up in Westminster that we thought were particularly interesting, but also at risk of getting lost in the, de- the general debate. So we made them standalone segments. And you can watch those on our YouTube channel in full. But just to give you a little flavour, the first was Neil Hanvey and his 10-minute rule bill, which was voted down shamefully. I beg to move that leave be given to bring in a bill to amend the Scotland Act 1998 to transfer the power to legislate for a Scottish independence referendum to the Scottish Parliament to provide that such power may only be exercised when the Scottish public had demonstrated its support for holding such a referendum to provide that no such referendum may be held sooner than seven years following any previous such referendum and for connected purposes. If we are indeed an equal partner in this union, then that seems like a very reasonable bill. It also would put us on the same footing as Northern Ireland, with the seven-year interval between referendums, etc. So it's not exactly a, a novel concept. It's one that the UK is signed up to in part of the UK. The other hot topic snippet came about in one of Joanna Cherry's speeches. It was actually in relation to the Rwanda bill. But she had some very interesting explanation around the requirement of the Treaty of Union on decisions made by Westminster. Just turning to the jurisdiction of the Scottish courts, this parliament, this union parliament, exists because of the Treaty of Union. Scotland has always had a separate legal system and Article 19 of the Treaty of Union between Scotland and England protects that that separate legal system, including its inherent supervisory jurisdiction and including the nobili officium of the Court of Session, which is a power that the Court of Session in Scotland has to give remedies where otherwise there would be no remedy. And since the modern advent of devolution by virtue of the Scotland Act, the civil jurisdiction of the Scottish courts, including judicial review, has been a devolved matter and therefore one properly for Scotland's Parliament. So I believe that this bill is a grave intrusion on the civil jurisdiction of the Scottish courts, and that's the reason for my amendments. The Scottish Government is considering a legislative consent motion, and my Amendment 34 would ensure that this Act, this bill, when it becomes an Act, would not come into force in Scotland without a legislative consent motion. <laughs> in New Clause 4 says that notwithstanding anything in this, this bill, if it were to become an Act, the supervisory jurisdiction and the nobility of of the Court of Session would be preserved. And in that way, I hope to ensure that asylum seekers in Scotland will still have the protection of the courts in accordance with our constitutional tradition. Just to explain, the nobili officium of the court session is a noble office or duty which Scotland's highest court has. It's a sort of extraordinary equitable jurisdiction by virtue of which the court may, within limits, mitigate the strictness of the law and provide a legal remedy to people where otherwise none would exist. Um, So my amendments, Madam Chair, they're designed to protect Scotland's courts and the Scottish constitutional tradition, and they're there to ensure that asylum seekers in Scotland might still enjoy the protection of the courts from the infringement of their fundamental rights. And that's what people in Scotland want, and that's been expressed repeatedly through uh, the Scottish Parliament. So... I am, of course, a Scottish MP and and a member of the Scottish Bar, and I'm here to do what I can to protect Scotland and Scotland's legal system for the extraordinary attack which this bill constitutes on human rights and the rule of law. None of Joanna Cherry's amendments were accepted. 
So we're potentially shaping up to have a constitutional challenge there. And I hope the Scottish government right now are consulting the lawyers. So sticking with the Rwanda bill for a moment, Alison Thulis has made some extraordinary speeches during these debates, calling out the inhumanity of what the Tory Westminster government is trying to do here. What a despondent, pathetic, ridiculous uh, bill this has been and what a grim debate it has been to listen to. We have had a wide range of speeches, most of them, I'm afraid to say, uh, putting it politely, uh, were absolute guff. Uh, The UK is not looking to accommodate 8 billion people. Of course it's not. Um, Most people in small boats are not economic migrants. We know this because the Home Office grant them asylum. The only member, I believe, uh, that mentioned the people that this bill will affect uh, was the Honourable Member, my friend from Sheffield Hallam, uh, who talked about the impact that this will have on real people, on their lives, on their futures, and the impact that this legislation will have. None of the members opposite, as far as I can establish, have ever met or spoken to an asylum seeker, have any conception for the struggles that they have been through, because they weren't able to quote a single one that they have sat opposite in their surgeries. Asylum seekers have done them no personal harm, yet they seek to ruin their lives. As if there haven't been enough horrific happenings this month between wars and COVID and uh, Rwanda bills. There's also the Horizon scandal. This is and this is the shameful period where where the post office prosecuted huge numbers of postmasters and postmistresses based on evidence they thought from their computer system Horizon, which turned out to be flawed. So. The discussion now is forgiving pardons to those who were prosecuted. The post office is, of course, completely reserved. It is run by Westminster. It was under the control of Labour at the time the scandal began. That didn't stop Douglas Ross and his sidekick, Anas Sarwar, trying to find some way of blaming it on the Scottish government. Anas Sarwar very sneakily bundling the two governments together and then criticising both of them for the actions of the UK government. Um, The answer to that one, Anas, I would say, is Scotland shouldn't have two governments, it should only have one, ours. And Hansel was having none of his nonsense. So I do remind Anna Sauer, of course, the Labour Party were in the UK government for a number of years while sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses were telling UK government postal ministers, Labour ministers, that the post office was presenting inaccurate data. So I think it is important for all UK-based parties in particular to reflect on their relationship with the post office and whether they were listening uh, or not. And Stephen Flynn at PMQs made very clear where the blame lies. Horizon system introduced by Tony Blair, the former Labour Party leader and, of course, now a Knights Garter, a Horizon system defended by the current leader of the Liberal Democrats, himself a Knight Bachelor, a Horizon system scandal overseen by a former Conservative Prime Minister who now hides in the House of Lords as a baron. The reality is that sub-postmasters never stood a chance against the Westminster establishment, did they? It's been such a grim month so far that it was something of a light relief to turn to Deirdre Brock and her weekly battle with Penny Mordaunt. Um, Mr Speaker, once again I'm indebted to the Leader of the House. Her eccentric video last week joking about Tupperware and the Stone of Destiny excited quite the response in Scotland. Why is she always on about Scotland, they ask? The Tories have given us a joke Minister for Common Sense. Looks like we now have a Minister for Clickbait. 
Scotland does seem just a big joke for her. The brief seems clear to rubbish and insult Scots every week in business questions. Of course, she's not alone. It seems to be Tory policy these days. But she's adding value now by writing full-page articles in the papers about how awful Scotland is, along with a new clickbait video every week. All that effort, Mr Speaker. Of course, given the very bad news for her party in this week's YouGov poll, maybe these joke videos are in fact auditions. Perhaps not so much stand-up and fight as stand-up comedian. Meanwhile, her own government's record is absolutely nothing to joke about. Destitution rising, doctors on strike crippling the English NHS, seacoasts foul with pollution, inhumane treatment of asylum seekers and the breaching of international law, unresolved scandals piling up, and the crushing impact of one of the worst Tory jokes of all, Brexit. But before we're treated to, or I don't know, perhaps an attack on the Scottish Government and praise for the bullish actions of the zombie Scotland office, I mean, surely, Mr Speaker, Scotland can find a better use for what is it now over 12 million quid than funding that ever-expanding propaganda unit, beavering away behind the scenes, undermining the work of the Scottish Parliament and, of course, assisting the leader with her scripts each week. But closer to this place, we have the Westminster joke of the other place with its 860 or so ermine-clad peers but one notable absentee. The leader's Scottish Tory friend and colleague, Baroness Moan, is currently not a sitting member because she's taken a leave of absence by her own choice. It's being reported in the Daily Record. Baroness Moan claims she's still a Conservative. As far as she's concerned, she never had the whip removed. So can the leader confirm that if Baroness Moan resumes her place in the other place, uh, say tomorrow, as she's entitled to do, I believe, she can sit as a Conservative? If not, exactly when was the whip removed? And can she possibly make time to answer that question before her next uh, reading out of uh, this week's hilarious clickbait You're listening to Bits and Pieces. You'll probably remember a couple of weeks ago we had an interview with Leslie Riddick telling us about the tour that she's doing with her new film Denmark. That was a lot of fun. And coincidentally, friend of the podcast Jim Byrne also got in touch with us because he'd been interviewing Leslie and gave us the opportunity to use some of his interview in bits and pieces. So we are going to do that because in Jim's discussion with Leslie, they actually got onto a slightly different topic, which I thought was really quite interesting. So we're going to include that. And thanks very much to Jim for sharing it with us. And if you'd like to follow Jim, he's got a podcast called Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End Chat. You know, I I just am very conscious that there is a changing of the guard for sure that needs Mm -hmm. to happen and is happening. And every event I go to that has, you know, predominance of of grey hairs, uh, haired people in the audience. And uh, it sort of grieves me the way that people put themselves down because they're just the older generation. I mean, if we'd actually got most of the older generation voting yes last time, we'd have been laughing, you know. But I think the thing is, um, from and this might be a complacent thought, uh, but from speaking to some of the younger folk, there's such, I mean, the, the latest opinion poll, for example, 54% Ipsos Mori, 54% yeah. yes, amongst um, under 30s, 66%. Now, when you start to talk to some of the younger ones, you know, th- they're not, they don't feel the need to sit and kind of, you know, agonize and heads around how to work. It's almost like, I often think about this like a car. I, I don't know how the car works. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I get in it and sort of it, goes. But Scots have taken upon themselves to understand every aspect of you know, the economics, for example, 
what different model of yeah. currency should we have? I mean, this is well above most people's pay grades. What sort of education system should we have? What sort of this should mm-hmm. we do? Can, how can we model a border? Will we get into the EU? Is that the best destination anyway? You know, it's extraordinary to think that the average Scot, not maybe the average Scot, but many Scots, will actually be fairly up to speed with that. I did a thing last night with a brilliant group called Europe for Scotland. They've launched a petition uh, to get Scots to sign up asking Europe to bear Scotland in mind in its enlargement planning, because it's thinking about that for Ukraine and Moldova. But, you know, we've got to keep going. And there's us, you know, yeah. over here in the West, right? We could be we could be your first folk, right? And we're already EU citizens. There's no problem yeah. with us, right? Um, so this group, Europe for Scotland, has got a whole lot of sort of Scottophiles all over Europe who formed we committees ready to lobby politicians on our behalf. And all we need to do is get off our backsides and sign the the petition, essentially saying, would you please go and, you know, we haven't got a voice in Europe. This is the first European elections next year where we will not have a yeah. voice. You know, that that one is a very important thing to do. And these guys, the the two, the couple that are running that, who are a lovely young couple, Andrea Pisauro from Italy and Janina Yetta from Germany, they constantly remark on the kind of level of knowledge in Scotland about everything. It's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. This is what we've had to do, and it's in a way, it's too much. You know, we shouldn't need to know this level of detail to be able to work our way through life. It basically fries your brains. Yeah. So I think the younger crew are looking at it and thinking, a bit like me in the car, they're just thinking independence works. That's fine. I don't need to hear a thing about economics and what currency or bloody blah. I'm just going to say yes, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment, because we aren't independents, we do need to be thinking about all these things. That's the problem. I mean, I feel as if I have an obligation to be thinking about all these things <laughs> in my entire life, particularly oh, yeah, the economic yeah. stuff, you know, because yeah, yeah. people just don't understand it. You know? uh, yes, if you feel yourself in any position where you're kind of trying yeah. to encourage people or act as an interlocutor or yeah. or a coach or a teacher or yeah. a translator of jargon, then for sure... But I mean, the average person should no, you're have right. to be walking around with this they don't, level of detail, they don't. and they won't. They that freaks people out. I, I'm just wary that we don't put too high barriers in, and that's why yeah. going back to the films, these are relatively easy things to watch that let your mind just circle around a system in a country that works and thinking, yeah. yes, right, you know. Um, and it, it's strange because by the end of it, the first, as I've said, the first thing I'll say is that film makes me sad. And by the end of the discussion we've had, people are leaping out of the room. And I keep saying to them, why is up with Scots? We are weird in that you can come in, see the country we should have been able to be, realise that we've got quite a long way to go and end up being completely energised and going bouncing out of the room again. Go figure, you know. So thanks again, Jim, for sharing that with us. It is a good point, isn't it? You can't possibly answer every question that somebody might come up with. You know, I think it can be quite a daunting thought that somebody's going to ask you a question that you can't answer. But in real life, you don't know the answer to every question about anything. <laughs> there's, there's no end of the questions that somebody could come up and ask. And I've seen some of the 
the veteran campaigners, the ones who are really, really skillful in, in having conversations. And they don't try and answer every question. Here's a list of things that I can tell you. They turn it round and they start saying, what kind of future is it that you want? Or what is your concern? What is it you're worried about? And what is it that would make the biggest difference to you? And those kind of questions. And once you get somebody talking about the future they would like, it seems to be a much better platform for then having a conversation. Marlene and I were at a couple of really good meetings this week. We've had a a really busy month, actually, as well as the Jim McLean Memorial Lecture, which you'll get at the podcast next week. We were also at a meeting to discuss the National Care Service. Now, this seems to have started off as something positioned anyway as a publicly owned National Care Service in the same way that the NHS. But the bill, as it's making its way through Holyrood, does seem to be turning more into a framework for a whole load of private companies sitting underneath. And there are so many issues with that, not least public funds going into these organisations, which then come out in profits, which then disappear overseas or down to their headquarters in England or whatever it is. There is quite a bit of pushback against the bill. This is something we'll come back to, I think, at a future or maybe a future podcast. But the lovely thing about going to that meeting was that we met two people. One is Hugh, who is based on Glasgow and does a podcast called News for Scotland. So if you're interested in it, I think it's weekly. There's a sort of compilation of news clips, maybe a bit like this, only more news focused. So that's a good one to follow up on. And the other was a lady called Sarah, who is from Highland, and she and some fellow councillors got together and have come up with a song. It's an independent supporting song. They have a YouTube channel themselves called The Singing Councillors, but she's also given me the recording of their song, which is great, so I'll, I'll play that in a second. It is great to get out and about and meet people. And uh, if you spot us anywhere, do come and say hello. It's always nice to speak to folk. A couple of other events that we'll be at uh, tomorrow, actually, on the 27th, we'll be through in Edinburgh for a Yes for EU event, which is looking at routes into the EU and has two great speakers there, Kirsty Hughes and Heather Anderson. So if you're interested in that, I know it's short notice, but you, if you have a look on Yes for EU's website, there might be some tickets left for that. Also on the 3rd of February, as well as that Gaza demo in Edinburgh, it's also believed in Scotland's first kind of mass day of action in a particular location. This is Perth. It's happening at the Perth Hub, I think, from 11 o'clock. And there's going to be stalls. There's going to be mass leafleting and not sure what else, maybe some music. Who knows? So if you can get along to that, I'm sure they'd appreciate the support. And the other thing, throughout the month, there is also the... Two movies and one Leslie Riddick's Denmark film. You can get tickets for that from her website. And the other one is the movie To See Ourselves. If you haven't seen that, that looking that's looking at uh, the 2014 referendum through the eyes of one of the activists. So plenty going on. So that's our roundup of bits and pieces for January 24. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you later. Bye now. I saw a dream, but it was not a dream People marching, making hope come true Hands waving white and blue 
I stood alone beside a piping band Heard a child say as she took my hand She said, take, take me to the land The land where they left the light on
You've been listening to Bits and Pieces. <laughs>